Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. So usually at Hope, if you are new with us... We like to explore the Bible one verse or even one passage at a time, but this year we've been doing something different. We've been exploring the Bible one book at a time. We started this series in September, and so eight months and 41 books later, we're ready to explore the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. Now let's unpack this title for a moment. So first of all, it is called a gospel. It is called a gospel. Why? Well, because Luke is not the hero of his book, and neither are you the reader. Okay? Jesus is the hero. See, gospel means good news. It's the English translation of the Greek word euangelion. Eu means good. Angelion is a message or news event. And so in Luke's Greco-Roman culture, in which he's writing this story, uh, this word, gospel, euangelion, this word was used to describe important military victories and royal births. The idea was this. Hey, everybody, something very important just happened, and you had nothing to do with it. But it has everything to do with you. Evangelion. This event, this message of an event will transform the world you live in, whether you welcome it or not. Because something happened. Should you live in resistance to this event, then this actually will be very bad news. But if you welcome this event, if, should you embrace this event, it is the best possible news. Well, for Luke... This good news is not the birth of an emperor in Rome or one of his victories, but it is the birth and the victory of King Jesus. That is the good news, who unlike the emperor of the world was born in a barn and slept in a feeding trough, and whose victory was not won with a large army, but was won actually on a shameful Roman execution row. This is, according to Luke, the euangelion, the good news that changes everything. And it is the best possible news should you embrace it. Well, Luke has joyfully embraced this event as good news, and he wants you to do the same. In fact, if you look at the very first section of Luke in chapter 1, Verse 1, he says this to the man who funded his research project and his writing project. He says in verse 1, Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, O excellent Theophilus. That name is free for the taking, by the way. It's a great name. Lover of God. And so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught, says Luke. And so this Gospel of Luke is investigative. It's an account. It's something you hear about. Again, it happened outside of Luke. It happened outside of you. And it's something that we either embrace or reject. 
It's not a new human path, something you must do. Gospel is something God has done. But the second thing we see about this title is that this gospel is according to Luke. Now, Luke is a very interesting person. He was, first of all, a doctor. Any doctors or doctors in training in this room? He had a missionary heart. So he, we see, traveled with the Apostle Paul as Paul was starting churches. And we also know that Luke was a religious outsider. He was a Gentile. He is actually the only non-Jewish author in the whole Bible. That alone is a sermon, friends. That we have a gospel according to Luke is proof that God meant what he said. That he will make Israel a blessing to the nations. And so it should be no surprise that the Jesus we meet in Luke's gospel is the Savior to outsiders and to down and outers as well. Luke himself received the surprising welcome of Jesus as an outsider. And so when Theophilus, another religious outsider, commissions Luke to research and to write an entire gospel, I can almost picture Luke jumping at the opportunity. So if you think this morning that Christianity might be for powerful insiders, for self-righteous, power-hungry people who use religion for their own gain and for their own agenda, Luke, Luke has a very different story to tell. But before we listen, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer? And by the Holy Spirit, would we indeed encounter the risen Jesus through your word? Would we indeed see him and then our hearts would they sing of him? Lord, we need most of all this morning to see the beauty of Jesus. And would you grant that prayer we ask in his name? Amen. So when I was growing up, kids in my neighborhood would organize a pickup football game. By the way, child psychologists, I've learned this recently, are actually beginning to talk about the importance of unstructured play, and in particular, the value of pickup games. Who knew? Well, I guess the way these pickup games in my childhood sort of shaped me or developed me was learning how to deal with rejection. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, I was eventually picked, but it always felt like a concession from the captain. I always felt like a leftover, and so I would run around in these backyard football games thinking, what is the point of this? I'm never going to get past the ball. I don't have a vital part to play on this team, and so I never really loved it. I tolerated it. I didn't love it, though. I didn't love it like those who had a part to play did. I didn't throw myself into it. And I think, if I'm honest, most of us sort of struggle in life because the way we feel about life is the way that my fourth grade self felt about backyard football. We ask, what's the point? Do I even have a significant role to play? I know if we're believers in God, we can say, I know that God picked me, but as a concession, clearly. 
And so I guess I'll just run around, I'll flail my arms, pretend he's going to pass the ball to me. And maybe in time, like my football career, just walk off the field. Apparently Mark Twain once wrote, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. The problem is that most of us walk around life without finding out why. I mean, we all probably know what it feels like to struggle to get up out of bed in the morning. We are designed to have an answer to the why question. And since many of us don't have that answer, we distract ourselves from the despair of not having an answer to the why question. Well, one of the great things, friends, about reading the Bible one book at a time with you guys is that we get to zoom out and we get to see the biggest possible picture of each book in the Bible. And when we do this with Luke, there is one giant hard-to-miss thing. And it's this. That God is on a mission. Theologians call this the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei, the mission of God. But here's the thing. This mission is the Lord. And yes, Jesus is the hero. But here's the thing. This mission is shockingly ours too. His story is shockingly our story. Did you know that Luke actually wrote a two-volume gospel? So part one is called Luke in our Bibles. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Part two is called Acts in our Bible. We'll look at that next week. But the presence of these two volumes tells us one thing. That God is on mission. And it means that His story means that we have a part to play as well. See, part one, the Gospel of Luke, we could call Jesus on the move. Part two, the book of Acts, we could call Jesus on the move. Using us. Do you see it? God actually passes you the ball. That's what this means. He knows your failures. He knows your frailties. He knows how you've messed up. And he passes you the ball. That's how he designed it. The Apostle Paul says, I will exult in my weaknesses because in my weakness and in doing so, his strength will be on me. And that is, friends, his divine conspiracy. To quote Dallas Willard. That he uses us. He passes us the ball. So let's say, for instance, that I'm a mountaineer climbing K2. And let's say that I fell into a deep crevasse. And then let's say after a long search and rescue effort, I'm actually found by a rescue team. And I'm just pulled out of this deep crevasse. Now, what if the rescuer just left me on the mountain and said, Hey, I rescued you. Now, figure it out. That wouldn't be a rescue at all. See, what I need in that moment is more than a rescue from. I need a rescue to. Friends, I actually think Luke can save your life because Luke answers the why question. Jesus doesn't just rescue you negatively. He does. He rescues you from sin's power. He rescues you from 
sins penalty, but he also rescues, rescues you positively. He rescues you to. He rescues you to his mission. What does this mission look like? Well, this morning, I want to explore that question by noticing what Luke notices about Jesus' mission. Okay? I want to notice what Luke notices about Jesus' mission. And according to Luke, Jesus does two things quite often. And this is so fascinating to me. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is praying a lot and eating a lot. Attentive readers of Luke have noticed that Luke spotlights these two things, more than Matthew, more than Mark. And I believe these two actions of Jesus tell us way more than we think about his mission. Actually, we could say, without exaggeration, that these two things are like the shape of his mission. The praying life of Jesus reveals the kind of vertical dimension of his mission. And then the eating life, the dining habits of Jesus reveal the horizontal dimension of his mission. And if his mission is our mission... If he is passing us the football, then we should have a look. We'll start with the praying life of Jesus. See, Jesus' mission is marked by prayer in the Gospel of Luke. He is praying all of the time. So that one scholar writes this, Luke emphasizes prayer more than Matthew, more than Mark. Luke associates prayer with the most important moments in Jesus' life. And so in the other Gospels, we get a recording of these important moments in Jesus' biography. With Luke, however, we get them tethered to and connected to in a vital way to Jesus praying. And so here's a list. It's kind of a big list. But take a look at it. Just put your eyes over this list. And notice on the left-hand side all of these major events in the life of Jesus. And then notice how Luke connects it to his prayer life. As he was praying, Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. On the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, for transfiguration. After the mission of the 70, he sends the 70 disciples out. They come back, they tell these stories, and it says this in 1021. Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he prays and starts his prayer, O Father. Underline that verse if you ever thought Jesus was just sort of always in the minor key. The disciples asked him how to pray after he was praying. So they see him praying a lot and they say, teach us to pray. And he does, Father, hallowed be your name. The Mount of Olives, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. On the cross, at the, at the hardest moment in Jesus' life, he is praying, Father, forgive them. And even when we encounter Peter's repentance, we learn in chapter 22, verse 32, that Jesus was pleading in prayer for Simon Peter. Now, there's a lot. In fact, that could be an amazing nine sermon, like a nine-sermon series, couldn't it? Each of those. So there's a lot we could say about the praying life of Jesus, but I want to focus on one feature on that list, and it's one word even. Father. Do you notice it? Father, Father, Father. Listen, when we see Jesus praying, like when we're not just told Jesus is praying, but we actually get insight into what he's saying as he prays, all of them, I'm saying all of them begin with the address, Father. 
To Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God is Father. That's no shock. But what is a shock is chapter 11, verse 1. The disciples ask him how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, I'll teach you how to pray to my Father. Pray to God Almighty. No, it's not at all what he says. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Father. May your name be kept holy. I mean, that is audacious, but Jesus tells us to do it in Christ and by the same spirit that empowered and accompanied Jesus in his ministry. We get the same access to God. He, too, is our father in Christ. In my hometown, I was friends with the son of the superintendent of our schools. Uh, His dad was a big deal to others because he was superintendent. We'll call him Dr. C. He had a PhD. There weren't many folks with PhDs in my neighborhood. But he was a big deal to me because he called snow days. You know? (laughs) But to my friend, he wasn't Dr. C. He was dead. He was dead. He was dead. He was father. Well, Jesus is the unique Son of God, and so Luke reveals to us the eternal intimacy that Jesus has with His Father through prayer. And if we were to go back to this list, you can see it. This intimacy, His whole mission is so fueled and accompanied by prayer, because after all, He is the unique Son of God, He is reliant upon His Father, He even just seems to delight to be in His presence. At every significant moment in His life, He is sort of basking in sort of these B prayers, these B prayers, not necessarily do prayers, but B prayers. I am with you, Lord. I am with you, Father. But Luke also reveals to us that Jesus came to give us the same kind of access. We too, chapter 10, verse 21, can be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit and cry out, O Father. God is not just God Almighty. He definitely is. But He is also our Father. Friends, I think this tells us something critical about our life purpose. This is all I'm going to say about this. We are meant, if you want to answer to the why question, we are meant, we are meant to have intimate connection with God. We are meant to live in relationship with God. I want to say it simply like that because I think sometimes, myself included, we sort of like run past that simple truth. We get so caught up in doing for God. We get so caught up in theology and learning what is true about God that we actually forget that the whole meaning of our existence actually is to be with God, to have relationship with God. The why question in your life this morning will forever be unanswered if you have no intimacy with God. And so look at this way. Prayer, the gift of prayer, is no longer a burden. But the very meaning of our existence, the praying life of Jesus says that we were meant for intimacy with God. Luke is obsessed with Jesus' prayer life. But he's also obsessed with Jesus' dining habits. 
Just read Luke on your own after this sermon, maybe, maybe this week or this month. Take your time through Luke and just pay attention to the praying life of Jesus and the eating life of Jesus. Scholar Robert Karras Jr. says it this way. This is a famous quote. In Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Take a look at this slide. This year are nine meals of Jesus. The one at Matthew's house. We make a big deal about that one in our church. Or at Simon the Pharisee's house. Or the 5,000. Or at the Pharisee's home for lunch. Or the Sabbath meal at the Pharisee. Or Zacchaeus, uh, you know, sort of a notorious bad person. At Zacchaeus' house. At Passover with his disciples. At, on the Emmaus Road with two disciples. Even in his resurrection self, he meets his disciples and eats fish. It's striking when you see them all connected together. Now, usually it's rude to watch somebody eat, but Luke invites it. Luke just invites us to sort of like gaze at the dining habits of Jesus. And I think he does that on purpose because the dining habits of Jesus reveal a lot about his mission. What do they reveal? Well, first of all, this Jesus serves. Jesus serves. The first thing we see from his dining habits in Luke is that he serves at the table. When Jesus is at the table, Jesus is serving in stock. So after a meal with a Pharisee in chapter 11, Jesus says this. Blessed are those who, those servants to whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself. The Lord will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Speaking of his return. And then he says later at the Passover meal to his disciples, I am among you as the one who serves. So when King Jesus sees a table, he doesn't see an opportunity to be served. When King Jesus sees a table, he sees an opportunity to serve others. That simple. But Jesus not only serves at a table, he sees at the table. As others have put it, Jesus has a ministry of noticing in the Gospel of Luke. Especially those who are culturally and materially poor, but rich in faith. So for instance, at Simon the Pharisee's dinner party, there's a sinful woman, she is called in the text, who washes Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. Maybe you're familiar with the story. The Pharisees who are at this meal look away, but not Jesus. Jesus looks and sees faith. He notices. And perhaps most shocking is what I'll call the ministry of making room. Jesus slides over at the table. And makes room at the table for people who were excluded. So much so that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And a friend of tax collectors and other Sinners, You are not accused of being a glutton and a drunkard unless you are sitting and making room with gluttons and drunkards. That, that accusation would fall actually very false if Jesus came and fulfilled everybody's expectations about what a holy person was. So we learn something about Jesus. We learn something about his dinner habits with this alone. In fact, 
Dr. Barry Jones makes the point that the Pharisees were not joking around when they said this. They weren't just saying, huh, you know, he's just a drunkard and he just is a glutton. No, no. They weren't joking at all. They were referring to Deuteronomy 21.20. I'm quoting Dr. Jones here. Deuteronomy 21.20 depicts a rebellious son as a drunkard and a glutton. And this scholar goes on to say, implying that Jesus' table fellowship with people who were far from God made him worthy of death. Maybe your mind's going there right now. Mine certainly does. In a way, his accusers are right. Jesus so identified with sinners, he died for them. So when Jesus slides over to make room at the table, he slides over into his own death and crucifixion. It is not a cost-less making room. It is of utmost cost. So that professor at UCLA, Scott Barchi, he puts it this way. He said, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far from occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Sort of how we view the table as a transactional thing. Something in which we receive or consume No, instead, in that culture, being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony, a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Friendship, intimacy, and unity. Now listen, sin is our rebellious choice to leave the table of God. And in place of friendship with God, we have enmity, Scripture says. And in place of intimacy with God, we have distance. And in place of unity with God, we have division, eternal division. But at every meal of Jesus, especially the Lord's Supper, Jesus slides over into his own death so as to make you room. And to give you life. It's a life eternal And to, in the place of enmity, give you friendship. And in the place of division, to give you unity. And yes, in the place of distance, to give you intimacy. Remember his prayer life, friends. I saw this quote this week in my studies from N.T. Wright. He says that Jesus didn't give his disciples an explanation of the cross, really. He instead gave them a meal. And it's at this meal, it's at this Lord's Supper that we see in Luke, where the disciples get to experience Jesus sliding over into his own death to make room for you. So that you could experience friendship again at the table. It's very interesting. If you've been with us in this sermon series, we've been all throughout the Old Testament. And didn't you notice that every time there was a meal, like a sacrifice, for instance... It ended with it ended with the table. Ended with eating with the Lord Himself. That was the function of the sacrifice. So also with Jesus's. He is the ultimate and final and perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that we can eat with God.
and experience friendship, intimacy, and unity again. And what does this mean for you, friends? What does this mean for you? I have just two questions. Two questions. First, have you taken a seat at his table? Jesus' dinner habits are first and foremost an invitation for sinners to come and eat without cost. Jesus' dinner habits are first and foremost an invitation for you to come with only your brokenness and only your sin and to eat and to experience friendship, intimacy, and unity. Have you sat at his table? Have you taken a seat? If you think that Jesus invites you because of all the things you've done, because of your church membership, or because of all the sort of radical mission that you're on, and so you're sitting there probably because Jesus picked you because you're really good at catching a football, then you aren't at his table. You're at a table of your own imagination. Instead, if you come to the table because you are very last in the line, because you know of your failure, and you know of your need, then you are precisely at the table of Jesus, and you can have confidence that he is your friend. He is your friend. Have you taken a seat at the table? Maybe this morning, uh, you want to take a seat for the first time. I don't want to overcomplicate that decision for you. You could simply say, even right now in prayer, I'm coming to your table. I'm sitting down with you, Jesus. I'm done sitting at other tables. I'm done. I'm done relying on my own religious efforts. I'm done running away in my shame or my guilt. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm sitting down. And that could be you this morning. Welcome to the table. Welcome to the wedding feast. Second question I have for us is this. Have you minded your manners? Okay, have you minded your manners? Whenever I sit down at a table, I usually do a few things that I'm not even aware of. In fact, many of you who have dined with me could probably tell me better than I could tell myself my own dining habits. Usually, I, you know, I'm late to grab my napkin, put it on my lap. I'm kind of taller, so I'm a big leaner with my elbows. I just do it. I lean forward or back. Sometimes, you know, I'm rocking on my chair. These are all no-nos, by the way. <laughs> but I do it. I didn't learn to do this. I caught this. I caught this. And that's how dinner habits work. You aren't really taught dinner habits. You sort of pick up on how we dined from our family of origin. And Luke is saying to all of his readers, if you eat with Jesus on a regular basis, the dining habits of Jesus will get caught. He has welcomed you at his table at greatest cost. Now we do the same. The habits of Jesus are what? Serve, see, and slide over. Now they're ours. Not to earn a place at our table, but precisely because we are at his table. You see it? We are actually freed up. We are rescued from sin. We are rescued from its condemnation. And we are rescued to the dinner habits of Jesus. To serving others. We're rescued to the freedom of serving others. We are rescued to 
the freedom of noticing others. We are rescued to the freedom of sliding over, even at, especially at, greatest cost. I love this quote from Chris and I. The Bible meets an increasingly isolated world with a table. The battle is not won in better community programs or small group initiatives, but rather in ordinary Christians hosting meals for their neighbors on a regular basis. I love that quote because it's so simple and so biblical. Hope has a value of redemptive hospitality. We use that word redemptive to market and to sort of set it apart from what I could call recreational hospitality. Recreational hospitality is fun. It's usually inviting folks who give you something in return. It's usually something that you feel really good about afterwards and you just sort of like, man, that was good. A lot of times we use hospitality in our cultural moment to climb, don't we? And we're going to have a strategic hospitality moment where maybe I maintain um, my social status. And that's usually marked by who's not invited, isn't it? Well, the dining habits of Jesus are redemptive. They're not cozy, they're costly. In those days, scholars point out that dining like Jesus would probably would get you fired or get you cut off from your social clique. But that's our mission. That's our mission. It's costly. We serve, we see, we slide over with Jesus. Scott Archie again would say, from the perspective of Luke and Acts together, God intends this new community to offer solidarity among Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. So let me just ask you, who can you invite to your table this week? If you're in college, who can you invite the dining hall this week. If you're in high school, the lunch day. Maybe it's time to fight the battle. As Chris and I puts it, we are in a battle. Maybe it's time to fight the battle we're in, not with a keyboard. Amen? What if instead we fought With a butter knife, sharing bread, making room, inviting Jesus. That's the mission. When I'm on a mission to, let's say, paint the garage or even make a meal, uh, real talk, I have a lot of trouble inviting others in. I have a lot of trouble inviting others in, especially to help me. I want to control the outcome. So if anybody messes up the meal, we'll say. I want to be the one that messes it up. I have a strong vision of how I want it to be, and so I have a lot of trouble inviting other people into it because I don't know if it's going to happen the way that I'm envisioning it. This is not a good thing, by the way. Okay? I need to grow here. But gratefully, friends, God is not like me. When he is on a mission, he invites you, all of you, to take part. He entrusts you, actually, to take part. And he empowers you by the Holy Spirit to do so in your weakness. Jesus gives us his prayer life and a place at the table. Now let's go.
And so we do, Lord. We come to you. We are grateful that we are rescued, but we're also grateful that we are rescued into a purpose. Lord, many of us are wrestling with the why question. Would you renew this morning, this very morning, by your spirit, the answer to that question, which is the mission of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pointing others to the same. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.